And the second thought has been to think about the everyday as always laced with some fantasy. So it's not like this is the site which is completely mechanical and routine and our fantasy life lives somewhere else, but how fantasy is embedded in everyday, which of course makes me also think of the everyday as always shadowed by skepticism. That is, it's something which entails in a certain sense the idea of betrayal, the idea of things not quite working out, the idea of, you know, skepticism, not of the cafe skepticism kind, to just say, oh, how do I know the world exists and I can always show you that the world, you can't prove to me that the world exists. But the genuine kind of skepticism which can, you know, suddenly throw my world into jeopardy. Skepticism of? Skepticism as a particular stance. So that in some ways it's the kind of uh, world annihilation that can happen when, let's say, somebody I know very well. uh, I mean, think of Oedipus. Right? Sure. He suddenly discovers that yeah. the woman he's been sleeping with is his mother. Yeah. Now, obviously, this is not just something that would mean that at that moment his life became different, yeah. but that his entire life became different yeah. once something like that happens. Yeah. And I've been actually quite interested in seeing how skepticism is something which is, of course, a very genuine problem in philosophy, but it's always been taken as an epistemic problem, you know, how do we know the external world exists? Whereas the great move that happened with uh, Wittgenstein, I've argued in my work, um, is that the skepticism becomes a skepticism not about the external world, but about the internal world, about what is my world in some ways, which comes under under jeopardy. Which means that thinking about every day is to think about... Um, Philosophically, very difficult problems. And anthropologically, I think what happened in the social sciences after the World War II is there was this unprecedented period of what people thought was a period of peace. Actually, it was only a period of peace where social scientists were. It was not a period of peace in Africa. It was not a period of peace in Latin America. But these experiences did not register in the social sciences. And as a result, the everyday came to be seen as a pretty banal, benign kind of place. Whereas... Um, to me, it's like something which is uh, like, you know, you, you might see a solid rock from the outside. You lift it up and you see life mm. in that, right? Mm. And this is kind of squirming life in many kinds of ways. Where would you be on that, Akil? Is it a truism that there's a trade-off between equality and liberty? Is that something that you take for granted? And I know we are in the somewhat non-abstract Well, I I think in the last 300 years of Western capitalist modernity, the liberty and equality have been pitted against each other, even though there's a supposed commitment to both. Can I just go back to a couple of things which were very interesting? Uh, One thing that uh, Nirmalankshu said and one thing that Arjun said. Sure. You know, this idea of thought and its relation to freedom, just the very fact of thought. What's interesting to me is to try and think about what it is about thought which makes us think it by itself is a symptom of or sign of freedom. Imagine the following. Imagine a subject who is completely passive. 
superlatively passive. I don't know if any of you have read a, a novel by Goncharov, a Russian novelist called Oblomov. It's about a guy who never gets out of bed. He's just, just lying in bed and he's depressed. He just, just doesn't move. Now, Goncharov is not a philosopher, but let's make it a philosopher's <laughs> passivity, right? So he thinks the future is just like the past. The way act. It's all laid out. The past is laid out, but he thinks the future is all laid out. So he just says, what's the point? (laughs) So he's just lying there. Now, the thing is, if one says thought is sufficient for freedom, then we have to say this subject doesn't think, right? Doesn't have agency. But the point is, suppose his thoughts just happen to him, right? He doesn't put things together. Things get put together as a happenstance to him, yeah. right? So he doesn't think 2 plus 2 equals 4, or he doesn't think there is a horse with a horn or, you know, in its forehead or anything. The thought assails him right. that there's a thought. Impinges on him. Right. So the point is, when we say, if all our thoughts assail us and we don't think them, but they happen to us. You're getting the distinction? Yes, right? absolutely. We don't think them, but they just occur to us. Or they We're happen the recipient to us. of those thoughts. Then... We have to, if all our thoughts are like that, then we are going to have to say they're not really thoughts. Then we're not really free. Right. So, what is it about thoughts that they can't be comprehensively, superlatively happening to us passively? That's, that's the question we have to ask. So there's there's a- something in the nature of thought that they can't, in every single case of a thought, be happening to us. We must. Think. So thinking versus thought. Thinking is an active. Thinking. It's an activity. Yes. Right? But with what right do we say that is the question? I think that is the most underlying question to ask. Why are we not Oblomovs in yeah. this superlatively passive sense? So, so that's, that's just a question. In the psychological or psychoanalytic sense, there is a very definite meaning. In a philosophical sense. In a more philosophical sense, I would say the ego, uh, we talk about the problem of egocentricity. That's right. Everything is centered on the ego. Mm -hmm. So I think it could be defined in terms of the pronominal accusative me. Mm -hmm. What is this meanness? How is that meanness acquired? Okay, that I think is a fairly complex metaphysical story, but I'd like to make it as brief as possible. It's very interesting. William James, a hundred years ago, he drew a distinction between I and me. Oh, wow. It's not just a grammatical distinction. There is a grammatical distinction, but there is a distinction of a more metaphysical sort, although William James was So the me means the other? Well... Definitely the me cannot be the other, because after all, the me is also a self. Yes, yes, yes. So within the same self, you have the I aspect and the me aspect, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. The I self and the me self. And Mm -hmm. James says it is the self as subject and the me is the self as object. The I is a perspective, the first person perspective. And the first person perspective is always on something. Okay. Right, of course. Of I have course. right now a first-person perspective on you, on him, on him, of course. and the rest of the world. If the first-person perspective is not on others, but on what I call myself... Then it's me. Then the me is the object. Right. I is the subject. The subject-object dichotomy, which is an, a sort of internal duality, 
it exists within this unitary subjectivity. So for the rock, the I and the me is the same, is it? For the rock, there is no I, I there is, there no, is me no me. Because it doesn't have a point of view. I-ness is a point of view from a subject stance. The rock is not a subject. It's an in itself. And therefore, it has neither I nor me. And therefore, I think to come back to the point of certainty with which you began, yes, yes. if we have to ascertain the existence of the rock yeah. or any object, then the theory of, theory of ascertainment of that existence is an objective theory. You have a theory in terms of causal explanation, reference to the laws of nature and so on and so all on and that so on the science course. is very right. much used right. to. When it comes to, on the other hand, the ascertainment of one's own existence, I mean conscious existence, there is no such thing as objective certainty. You cannot ascertain the existence of yourself right. as a subject from outside Right. from some objective standpoint. Right. It has to be subjective certainty. That's why I think Descartes said, right. I think, therefore I exist. This I think is the subjective, uh, the subjective uh, act of consciousness. The axioms do not merely result in discursive, theoretic results. They result in actual, active, existential actions. Interesting. So, yes, that's the way I look at it. And interesting. And you know, why don't we... For example, if we just think of belief revision by in a, in a theoretical, technical yeah. sense, sure. is that theory reasonably crisp and almost done and dusted? No, it isn't. So no, it isn't. What are the difficulties with that? Let me first go sure. to this point that was the last point, sure. which was that it's one of the important tenets of Buddhism that one must not give up doubt. Mm. And uh, there, there are two stories that bear on this. One is some lectures given by Wittgenstein, sure. lectures on the foundations of mathematics, edited by Cora Diamond. Yeah. And these lectures were attended by Alan Turing, who asked some very, very good questions. And at the end of one interchange between Wittgenstein and Turing, Turing says, I see your point. And Wittgenstein said, I have no point. <laughs> because Wittgenstein's belief was that any philosophical truth must be totally obvious and therefore saying it would be to pretend that it wasn't obvious and therefore you could Before not it say was uttered. it. Right? Yeah, yeah. And there was a precursor to this in, in a statement of the Buddha made 2500 years before Wittgenstein where the Buddha said anyone who says that the Buddha has a ma message maligns the Buddha. Right. Because truth must be right there. And if truth is right there, then doubt plays no role. And belief plays no role. And belief plays <laughs> no role. <laughs> right. But it's that's because very, very we need this crutch yeah. of belief. Right. We are not able to live in a state of uncertainty. So in a sense, this entire notion of belief actually calls into question the notion of truth itself. It does. It yes. does. There's right. a very interesting word which Wittgenstein used and some other French psychoanalyst... Uh, Jacques Lacan used yeah. later in his life when he was actually working with mathematical objects like topological spaces, spaces uh, where he used the word monstration, not demonstration. Monstration. Monstration. Because when it's a demonstration, then the objective method and the thing that you're seeking are both there as two separate things and that the method grasps the object mm -hmm. in a step-by-step -step scientific manner. It's a right. demonstrative. Right. Hence, truth is still something to which, which is concealed and then you uncover through the right. method. While a demonstration, and here they use Wittgenstein's word showing as different yes. from self-showing, something yes. which you show mm -hmm. instead of demonstrating. Yes. Mm -hmm. Something which shows itself. Right. Mm -hmm. So when something shows itself, 
as a monstration, then the question of belief, even if it's highly subjective, but still believing something will not arise. Hmm. You know, would it be right to say that in your case, I mean, in the case of mm-hmm. video games, it's also a series of choices Absolutely, that the yeah. uh, character, Absolutely. meaning you, the, the Absolutely. player, is making. And therefore, if it is thing, something which has an aim of reaching a certain mm-hmm. successful completion, and if wrong choices lead you off, then that is what sticks in your memory, and then you don't make those choices yes. and you go Absolutely. on. So, which is very similar to also what we try to do in scripts. I mean, this, the plot progresses mm. because of the choices that the exactly. character makes. But in a game, exactly. you're a part yes. of the game. Yes, in the game, so you're, you're a, also you're the a, author. You're the object <laughs> yeah. and the you, subject. You're the player, the author at the same time, the object. And you're actually effectively writing and rewriting many of these scripts. There might be one scripted narrative which will lead you from stage A to stage D. But there are all these other possibilities that can exist and there is in, incompleteness is also a valid possibility yes. in the mm. can i jump please, in there please, a little please. bit which is one thing that i have always thought is you know anjum talked about ending a play or a story and how important it is for us as writers to have the, the ending in yeah. view but i often think in relation to the greatest crisis in our lives which is death we don't know when it's going to come and so our lives are more like a television play which goes from episode to episode <laughs> and we don't know the serial like a television serial but not opera. like a greek tragedy where you already know the mm. end so you mm. have these two models of life as it yeah. were which are played out in fictional forms one would be this television serial model where we go from episode to episode always drawing on memory and various inputs and the other is where we imagine the end of a life and our own lives which is impossible to do so that we do fictionally to self create our deaths that we can only do fictionally because we could never we can only do it hypothetically so i would think of fiction as essentially a form one way i would think of fiction as opposed to story is that it is a thought experiment uh-huh. it is really testing out possibilities that space of possibilities and our ability to imagine different scenarios for our own deaths which we can never live through and come out at the other end is this fictional possibility so you know narrative has a structure causality a beginning and middle and an end and the end is hard to imagine yeah. fictions enable us by creating several possibilities to actually imagine what could happen so this is what aristotle said not what does happen but which could or ought to happen yeah. so there is a moral twang there there's a moral energy there as well yeah. so you know a lot of stories you know our stories people want to know the good well formed story what is the moral of the story right <laughs> i mean so the moral of the story is so critical and as social beings we are 
in a way, we say, why do we have to produce a moral? But at the other hand, stories end with these generalizations or imply, even if they do not state, the goals of moral goals of life. And I really like a comment on whether this element of a moral coda is essential to our sense of a satisfying story. In a video story. game, do you need or a coda? Or do you need that? Returning the narrative time to the present. I'll start with the issue of death. So Aristotle says that uh, a plot is about desis and lucis, tying and untying. Hmm. Yeah. So with video games, it is about dying and undying, <laughs> if I might be allowed. Yeah, undying. Yeah, you, you can die and you then can you can die go back and then to you the can previous level. Start. You exactly. can start again. So this is, instead of a sense Fiction. of an ending, it is again, excuse the other pun, an absence of an ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absence of an ending, in mm-hmm. which is what happens with right. the idea of the narrative in the game. And as Anjum and Professor Nair just pointed out, I mean, they were talking about the game. It's about choices. It's also about giving you the hands-on experience that you are writing the story which is happening to you, which is a very strange, very scary kind of thing. You're writing your own story into existence. But does it stay ineffable? Do you know what it well, is I'll, that you don't I'll, know? I'll give, I'll give a very solid example, you know. Yeah. I've always been fascinated by clouds. I love the Bombay monsoon. And between, say, the months of late May to September, the Bombay skies are a theatre. You just see just amazing things happening. And I'm often walking with my head up, you know, (laughs) looking at the performance, you know. And uh, I feel somehow how important this is to me, you know, and, and how much I love it. But there's a sense of incompleteness. I need to do something in order to complete this experience for myself. I order to either write a poem or I want to do an artwork which will tell me that yes, I do understand what I love so much. And give this is complete the experience or record the experience? Not that it matters uh, it will, maybe. Uh, uh, recording the experience will also complete it. Mm-hmm. Without recording it, it is not complete. It mm-hmm. remains kind of uh, uh, beautiful and vague. And I have an impulse that I want to understand it. You know, I want to know it. And then, I mean, greedily in total possession of it. So I started by uh, wanting to depict clouds on a piece of paper. And the first obvious uh, way to do it is to take ink, water and a brush. And dip your brush in ink and water and make masses. Because that's what, no, generally clouds are thought of as masses. Humanist clouds. Yes. Or, you know, even different kinds of clouds. Sure. But generally masses. And something told me, no, don't do that. It's not going to get you anywhere. And I spend a lot of time, you know, figuring what should I do? Mm-hmm. And finally, just instinctively, I picked up a pen or a pencil and started making discrete lines on the paper. Mm-hmm. And I would make them at the rate of five or six lines a day. And the next day I would pick up the paper again and add five or six lines more. And then I found over a course of, say, eight or ten sittings that these lines are beginning to weave together and become something. And at a certain point, I felt instinctively, now I have to stop. And the drawing of the cloud is complete. But you were intentionally making a cloud from the word get-go. I was, I was. Now, this is an instinctual process. But somewhere along the line... I began to understand why I'm doing this. Mm. 
And I began to understand that what I've got on the paper now, which I call a cloud, and which if it were put up on an exhibition space, somebody might not call a cloud, mm. unless I were to title it. You mm. know? The reason I say that this is a cloud is because a cloud is one thing in the universe that has no final fixed form. Yeah. That in front of your eyes, it is forming and dissolving at the same time. Yeah. Unlike an apple, if I were to place on a table and paint it or draw it, I'm looking at the cloud and right there in front of my eyes, you know, uh, it's adding on to itself and it's subtracting from itself. And that's why those lines worked. Mm. Because the lines came together and the lines drifted apart. So, give in this case, what. And this knowledge, the conscious knowledge of it came only more as than a result of that process. Through the process, yes. Mm. The process was instinctual. And when I finished this drawing, I said, ah, now the cloud is mine. And right. that's greed, if you like. Let me ask a question. And we'll maybe go and do that same and end with you, Tara. It's specific, but it's speculative. People do die in their sleep. We dream while sleeping. Is it possible to dream and die? Is it possible to die midway while dreaming? Do you know what I mean? So one is asleep and presumably one can die while one is asleep. Is it possible to die while dreaming? Hypothetically, yes, it is possible. And possibly this is what is a near-death syndrome. And there is even a society in U.S. There is a near-death syndrome. And therefore, the 40 part of this, there is a chapter or the article which Istvan Bokon from Hungary and mm. I have written there. That's a great point. Right. So it is there and it will be, I do not know exactly if somebody has commented on it, but somebody most often has commented on surgical bed. And yes, somebody has gone into a dark and then Milky Way and something. And the surgeon has pronounced somebody dead and it has come back. These are experienced are there. Now, whether somebody is dying while dreaming or non-dreaming, this very specific question, I, ha- I do not know. It's a speculative know. question. Yes. Where are you on that, Sarla? Is it possible to die while dreaming? The, the, the dictionary dreaming? No. You can fantasize about your death and can die. If you can think to that deep level, you so can So everyone die. who has died in their sleep so far in the history of this planet that, yeah. has not been dreaming in that moment? I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I'm really not sure about that. Of course, it's a spe- where are you on that, Tara? And we'll end with that. I really can't say. I mean, I don't think it's likely. I don't know. That's my gut feeling. That Why? Because you're... Why do you have that gut feeling? My gut feeling is that it's creative, the making of the dream. Something is happening or something and it's like... And then the body would like to finish that moment. Mm. It's like the moment of clicking a shot in a camera. You know, you just want to click it. You won't leave your hand in between. You click it and die. This is my gut (laughs) feeling. Yeah, like, like, uh, before dying, if you are at the deathbed of somebody, you will always see that they are talking about their old dead ancestrals coming to receive them and all that. And from there only, they understand that it is time for them to go. But this is not dreaming. They are thinking about it. So it is possible to die while thinking. But while dreaming or not, I am not sure about it. That's right. In fact, I was reading Amitabha Ghosh's Sea of Poppies and there the story actually 
centers around this musahar woman herself and you know his description it it was poignant to me because the description that he gave two centuries ago was exactly what i'd seen with these women who were having this conversation with me life is still frozen with them there was this musahar woman who was you know she developed a great deal of trust with me so at some point she whispered to me and she said you know i actually own a bicycle and you know where i've kept it and she took me to her house and she'd broken up the bicycle into pieces and camouflaged it in different parts of her house and she was telling me this big secret that she actually owned a bicycle her son her husband had died in some illness her son had migrated to the city and she never heard back from him mm. you know she was just living somehow it's that kind and i don't think we recognize what is their view of the world ours how do they look at the world that's what i enormous degree of dignity i do find resilience a huge amount of self uh, you know mutual self help but also at some level uh, a resignation to that life will not change why is fake art more important i think a fake work of art is only important until it's known that it's fake i mean we can talk about a fake picasso or a fake jamini roy but that will have a limited circulation in say ebay where people who don't know enough about picasso or jamini roy will buy that but in the art world where people they are experts on picasso and jamini roy and their museums and their curators sure. and their collectors and their art enthusiasts sure. those fakes will have no play at all really but what about uh, something really interesting like recently there was a max ernst painting le forêt the forest mm-hmm. which emerged into the world mm-hmm. and this is a missing painting of max ernst so mm-hmm. it was made from a period of his life when a lot of his works were destroyed or disappeared because of the nazi era mm-hmm. and a lot of the jewish artists had to leave and their work was considered degenerate art it went underground and so these works were gone and so later on in the 2000s le forêt emerged and it was shown at the max ernst museum it was authenticated by the greatest uh, expert on max ernst work who was his friend and a major uh, art historian in europe it was shown at the museum of modern art uh, when uh, max ernst's uh, wife saw that painting she said it's the best work max ernst has ever done <laughs> And, and it turns out to be fake. The only problem with Le Forêt was that it was not painted by Max Ernst. <laughs> 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 so, and sometimes even the original master might be unable to say it apart I mean, exactly so, I, so in my yeah. view le forêt is not a fake it is an original because it's not copying any max ernst work that's a special kind of original it is yeah. a special kind of original because the artist who's beltracci who's like who's now the master forger of the 20th and 21st century he is the master forger i'm very fascinated by him and it's his life beautiful. because he has claimed now publicly that he has painted 500 great masters and these are lying in museums around the world they've been passed by sotbees and christies they've been authenticated by so millions experts. and billions of dollars of chained hands around fakes and there's a van gogh there there's a durer there there's a picasso there and we don't even know where they are and which they are and yeah. but these are originals because he was smart enough not to copy a work of art but he studied the artist he studied the the style the, the, the motifs the style yeah. he he knew art history and he also realized what the missing periods were 
Yeah. And so he's created an original work that that artist would have done in that missing period. So in what sense isn't that an original? Only fake in that it's not painted by Max Ernst, but it has all the qualities we were talking about. It has creativity, it has genuineness, it has originality, it has been authenticated by the expert, including the wife. Yeah. So, you know, it's a very complex issue here and also it ends up being real for everybody. I shall give you a parable. This is something which you alluded to. And this is something which Chandrasekhar gave it to us. This is an Indian parable from nature. It says this parable entitled, Not Lost, But Gone Before, is about larvae of dragonflies deposited at the bottom of a pond. A constant source of mystery for those larvae was what happens to them when on reaching the stage of chrysalis, they pass through the surface of the pond, yeah. never to return. And each larva, as it approaches the chrysalis stage and feels compelled to rise to the surface of the pond, promises to return and tell them that remain behind what really <laughs> happens and confirm or deny rumor attributed to a frog that when a larva emerges on the other side of the world, it becomes a marvelous creature with a long, slender body and iridescent wings. Beautiful. But on Beautiful. emerging from the surface of the pond as a fully formed dragonfly, it is unable to penetrate the surface of no the matter how much it tries and how long it hovers. That's time for you. Terrible. And the history book of the larvae do not record any instance of one of them returning to tell them what happens to it when it crosses <laughs> the dome of their world. Right, which is and the Brahmand which is And that about. is the Brahmand. The parable ends with the cry, Will none of you in pity to those you left behind disclose the secret? 